0: I've given the privilege today of finishing the story of Joseph from the end of the book of Genesis. I've spent some time this week pondering one of the major themes of Pastor Seth's message last week from the beginning of the story of Joseph about God's sovereign plan showing up in the midst of difficulties and trials and tribulations and and places where God might seemingly be absent. The story of Joseph from his entry on the scene in Genesis 37 demonstrates so clearly that God's plans always come to pass. That God makes stuff work out for his intentions that often just don't make sense to us as we live and observe from our point of view. Have any of you ever experienced something that felt disappointing or made absolutely no sense to you in the moment but actually became a blessing or became crystal clear in hindsight? When you were able to see God's hand guiding it all along when you couldn't see that hand at all in the moment. You know, my journey to Penn State feels a lot like that to me. I grew up a moderate Penn State sports fan, but no one in my family had ever gone to Penn State before me. I had no roots or connections here in this community. I think I applied to five or six different schools, and among that list, Penn State was in that very enviable slot, rock-solid, last place, my very last choice. I remember just being captivated by the architecture at the University of Virginia, and any UVA grads here, I mean, what a beautiful campus every single spot on campus had some sort of thomas jefferson story Uh, thomas jefferson designed this building and thomas jefferson built this building with his bare hands and thomas jefferson ate some colonial hot pockets in this building and and thomas jefferson hurried into this building 10 minutes later for obvious reasons it it was just so cool it was so old so so historic and i remember cornell had these bridges that went over these amazing ravines with waterfalls. You got to walk over these bridges from the dorms to the classroom buildings. I mean, you know, nothing is quite as spectacular as walking by the gazebo on the way from Atherton Hall to the Willard building, but I was really impressed by those bridges and ravines at Cornell. And to complete the die out of Nell, I, Bucknell, I absolutely love I mean, their mascot is a bison. A bison, come on, how awesome is a bison, really? I love the Nitty Lions, but that animal doesn't even really exist, but a bison. I was thinking if I went to school at Bucknell, I bet they give graduating seniors like bareback bison rides to receive your diplomas. I mean, I don't know, but it sounds great. And Grove City. I don't remember a whole lot about it except that they had this campus-wide program that all students received a laptop computer from the college when they arrived as freshmen. Now, that might not sound so exciting today, but this was in 1846. (laughs) At the time, the only people who had laptop computers in the entire world were the FBI, NASA, and Grove City College students. I thought that was pretty sweet. Well, you know what happened? I ended up going to good old last place, Penn State. Very last choice, bottom of the list. Why? Because it was the cheapest. What an uninspiring reason to go somewhere, right? I mean, at the end, it all felt so unexciting and underwhelming. And where was God in any of that? Well, now I know. Everything that has happened in my life since that time, every blessing, every good thing, every lesson that God wanted to teach me, it's all happened because of my begrudging decision to come to stupid old Last Choice Penn State. Now, I happen to think that God would have done whatever he wanted to do through his creative and sometimes miraculous means. Even if I had completed the, the Nell trifecta at Grinnell College or, or if I had attended somewhere else, I don't know. God is not limited by my decision making, but I never in a million years could have dreamed all that he would be able to do in me and through me because I came to Penn State. And I'm grateful every day that he not only brought me to this community and not only did some amazing stuff during my time here originally, but, but that in his gracious plan left us here in this wonderful place for these decades to become deeply embedded in what has become a sacred space for us. There's no other place in the world that I'd rather live and serve and clip coupons than in Happy Valley. But high school senior Chad Oberholzer never could have imagined the journey that God was about to take him on by taking me where I really did not want to go. We can see this simple, and yet oh so powerful truth in the early life of Joseph. When Joseph was in that pit, sold to those merchants, as we considered last week in Genesis 37, do you think that he had a sense of what God had in store? I don't think so, certainly not in any specific sense, but God's plans always come to pass, in his timing, through his means, for his purposes. What a reassuring reminder that Pastor Seth offered for our reflection over the course of this past week. So as we now bookend the story of Joseph, I wanna mention something that I did this week for the first time in a long time. I've been tracking with our weekly Bible reading plan, but in preparing for this message, I sat down and read through the entire book of Genesis in one sitting. Now I'm a pretty slow reader, so that took I think the better part of three hours to do. But this is a Bible reading discipline that I haven't utilized in some time and, and I forgot how meaningful it is. If we think of the Bible as, in one sense at least, a a cohesive story of God's action and provision for his people throughout all of human history, then reading it in bigger chunks can be really helpful to be able to fit together the pieces in our minds. Now there is other value that can come from focusing on smaller passages of scripture, but we don't read most books by reading a few sentences at a time. When I'm reading a really good book, like I, I finally read all the president's men this summer, and I didn't read six sentences per day. I read as many chapters at a time as I could because it helps it helps it all fit together. Help me connect the narrative pieces from one chapter to another. Help me remember the names and the places. Reading an entire book of the Bible at one time is a really good practice. Probably how the Bible was intended to be read, frankly. More so than just as little slices and slivers. So so let that be a word of encouragement for you to consider maybe a, a new Bible reading practice or maybe a long forgotten Bible reading practice to carve out some time maybe monthly or weekly and and sit down and read the Bible in big chunks maybe even a book at a time so having read Genesis let me offer a quick summary of the rest of the story of Joseph that will get us to the culmination where we will land this plane today we left off last week in Genesis 37 with Joseph being sold by his brothers to some traveling merchants who were heading to Egypt having arrived in Egypt this favored son, this hated brother named Joseph continues his crazy roller coaster ride. Those merchants sold Joseph to Potiphar, an Egyptian political leader, and Joseph eventually became the head of Potiphar's household. But Potiphar's wife expressed her desire for Joseph, and Joseph resisted her rather bold, not so subtle advances. Joseph said, no, 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 and he fled. So Potiphar's wife then accused Joseph of pursuing her, which resulted in his immediate banishment To prison. So, almost dead in a pit, to head of a rich Egyptian's household, to imprisonment. But again, the roller coaster isn't over because God again blessed Joseph and allowed him to climb the ranks within the prison. And Joseph's wisdom and gift of dream interpretation became widely known such that he was called upon to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh, the Egyptian emperor. And he interpreted those dreams specifically and accurately, predicting that Egypt, like the rest of the Middle Eastern world, would have seven years of huge crops and great prosperity followed by seven years of drought and famine. And Pharaoh, impressed with this guy, said, all righty, Joseph, you've proven yourself in leading Potiphar's household and organizing things in prison and interpreting my dreams, so you're now in charge of the whole country through this upcoming season of agricultural and economic upheaval. So Joseph goes about storing the, f- the, the excess food from those seven years of plenty in preparation for the coming seven years of hardship. And when those years of hardship hit, Egypt was prepared to weather that storm thanks to Joseph but the rest of the world including his father and brothers back in Canaan they were not prepared for it so Jacob having no idea that Joseph was even alive let alone in charge of the entire country of Egypt sends most of his sons to Egypt to buy some food because they'd heard that Egypt was somehow doing well Jacob and his family were literally starving And so the sons travel back and forth a few times and there's some interesting shenanigans that Joseph plays on his brothers since he's in the enviable position of knowing who they are when at the beginning they have no idea who he is. And eventually after many episodes of crying and seriously, Joseph was a prolific weeper. The dude cried all the time. So after all of the weeping, Joseph couldn't contain himself anymore and he told his brothers, yeah, it's me, Joseph, the guy you wanted to kill and then decided to sell. Now, understandably, the brothers were freaked out. They thought he was going to kill them or imprison them or at least give them the Egyptian equivalent of a wet willy. They were scared. But he assured them that all was forgiven and that he would help to take care of them. So Joseph told them to go get Papa Jake and move the whole family into Egypt to Goshen, the nice part of town. And they did. And again, when Joseph saw his daddy, there were more tears. And Jacob lived happily ever after into his ripe old age. And when he died, Joseph buried his father, not in Egypt, but back in Canaan, where they had come from, from the land of Joseph's forefathers, Abraham and Isaac. That land keeps coming back in the story. And then we get near the very end of Genesis, in Genesis 50, and, and we see this fascinating little scene that will be our specific jumping-off point today. Feel free to turn on your Bibles or on your phones or just read along on the screen, however you'd prefer. We'll be in Genesis 50, starting in verse 15. Again, we'll be in Genesis 50, starting in verse 15. Here's what we read. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. So let's begin to reflect on this rather epic conclusion of the epic story of Joseph with an epic big-picture idea that God is faithful To his promises. God is faithful to his promises, in this case, using some rather creative means to bring about his ultimate ends. God is good to his word. When he promises to do something, he he will do it. Pastor Aaron preached earlier in this series from the first third of the book of Genesis about several promises that God made. For starters, God made a, a promise, a covenant with Noah. That Noahic covenant was God's unconditional promise. To humanity, God said he will never again allow for all life to be destroyed. No matter how ugly things look, God will keep extending grace and mercy and compassion to those he created, those he loves. In this case, at the end of Genesis, even when a drought and a famine appeared poised to destroy humanity, to decimate all of the known peoples, God intervened and brought this man, Joseph the Deliverer, into a position where he could save a nation and actually save people from many nations. God was faithful through Joseph his promise to Noah. The other key promise earlier in Genesis was was that God had promised Abraham that he would build a great and prosperous and powerful, powerful nation of people from Abraham's offspring. But not for their own sake. Indeed, the purpose of that promise was clear from the inception, that God would through his family reveal himself to all nations of the world, extending his love and grace and mercy and blessing to all who would come to know him. God would bless his people so that they could be a blessing to all peoples. And just two or three generations later, this promise seemed to be in jeopardy. This slightly bigger, but not so big group of Abraham's descendants at this point were in danger of starving to death. That would have been the end of the nation of Israel and the breaking of the Abrahamic covenant. But God was good to his word. Again, through Joseph the deliverer, that important family was saved, out of which its ongoing growth and expanding influence would be birthed over the course of many generations. God was faithful through Joseph to his promise to abraham and that message about god's faithfulness to fulfill his promises is a wonderful encouraging meta theme of this particular story and of the bible as a whole but what i'd like to do with our remaining time is press down into the earthly gritty tangible undercurrent of this story god is up here doing his thing true to his word but what are the human players in this narrative experiencing that might have some relevance to us today as a part of that overarching promise fulfillment of god I think a critical piece of this entire story is the means through which God is fulfilling his promises, the means through which he's being true to his word, the means through which he's using his people to advance his cause and to bring about his intended outcome. If we only focus on the high-minded upper story, I think we miss something critical on the human side of the lower story. To be clear, this is still about God, but it's about what God is doing in individual lives, not just what God is doing on a historical macroscopic scale. The story of Joseph is one that highlights the important reality that God is in the business of relational restoration. God is in the business of relational restoration. Can any of us imagine what it would be like, hypothetically speaking, to experience relational brokenness in this world? Can any of us possibly fathom what it would feel like to experience severed relationships with people we love or at least have loved? Is anyone here today hurting or reeling from a relational breakdown in your life? You don't need to raise any hands. I'm confident that the answer is yes for at least some of us. We just walked through another election cycle, so I know that the context has been ripe for antagonism and combative relational angst, but we don't need politics to experience relational tension. Amongst this church family, there are friendships that were once rock solid that have completely deteriorated over time. Former roommates who've moved out and never spoken to each other again. BFFs who have abandoned the forever and can't imagine how they were ever best friends to begin with. I know there are some marriages that have ended and there is relational brokenness in every divorce. And there are also marriages that are struggling, hanging on by a thread. And there are parents and children who were not on speaking terms, maybe for years or decades. Prodigal sons and daughters have walked away from family and faith. Parents who've abandoned their kids, colleagues who were once grateful to work alongside each other who now hope to never see each other again. And a thousand iterations of relational disconnect that may be less dramatic and and less definitive than what I've just described, but no less painful in the innumerable hurts and offenses and grievances that have accrued between any two people over time. This This is the human experience. This is your experience and my experience. The longer I live, the more I know that these realities are in some sense inevitable. You know, that whole fall of humanity thing, our sinfulness, Encroaching on the relational health and harmony that God originally intended for us to experience, not just with him, but with each other. That's sort of the deal. And the question that I want us to consider today is whether or not God has anything for us, a word for us to consider, a thought for us to ponder, an approach for us to pursue in the midst of whatever relational disharmony is part of your life today. Now, you may say there's nothing, no miracle that could possibly restore what has been broken in my life. You cannot imagine, Chad, the hurt and the pain and the agony of what I have experienced at the hands of someone I thought cared for me. No, I cannot. But God can. And he's worked with relational messes, if I dare say, just as painful as yours and as painful as mine. Such as, for instance, a family of brothers who were so irritated by their arrogant little punk brother that they plotted to kill him and then decided it would serve them better to make some money on their disposal of him as useless rubbish, thereby selling him into slavery never to be heard from again. That feels to me like it's just about on the grand scale of human relational wretchedness. That's pretty dadgum close to the bottom of the cistern. And God used that brokenness, yes, to fulfill his plan, but only through the ultimate and eventual restoration of those relationships. And did he do it by just waving a magic wand and making all the tensions go away? Well, no. He did it as he so often does through the active participation of his children for their good and and for his glory. On every situation when we experience relational brokenness, there is sin. That's why relationships break down, break apart. On occasion, that sin is truly and completely one-sided where there is a clear delineation between the wronged and the wrongdoer, between the offended and the offender, between the sinned against and the sinner. In some cases of abuse, we might suggest that there is 100% culpability for the abuser and 0% culpability for the abused. That is absolutely a thing. And at first pass, we might superimpose that framework upon Joseph and his brothers. The brothers were the sinners who sold Joseph into slavery and Joseph was the sinned against. But even this situation isn't that neat and tidy. Back in Genesis 37, do you remember Joseph almost taunting his brothers with his dreams about his eventual elevated position over and above all of them? Do you remember Joseph seemingly flaunting his position as the favored son with a special fancy Gore-Tex coat? Now, parenting side note, this one's free. Jacob's whole, this is my favorite son and I want everyone to know about it so I will give him this coat to mark him as the favored one, that whole, that whole thing. Can we agree that that's just bad parenting? <laughs> okay? Honestly, some of the fault here lies with Jacob being a moron. Didn't exactly set up his kids for relational success, did he? Nonetheless, Joseph was an arrogant young braggart not coming off here as pure and innocent. But that certainly does not justify his brother's doing the whole, let's kill him now, let's sell him instead thing. It's a big mess. On that we can agree, but God is in the business of relational restoration, right? How in the world did they get there? Well, I'm gonna offer you just two prerequisites to relational restoration that emerged from this story. Two ways that these imperfect, flawed humans had to engage with each other to ultimately find their way to reconciliation. And we'll start with the prerequisite from the side of the wrongdoer. Humility is critical to relational restoration. Humility is an essential starting point for putting some pieces back together when relationships are strained. Now that humility can be expressed in lots of different ways, but the literal starting point for restoring that which had been so dramatically and comprehensively shattered between Joseph and his brothers was the humility, in this case case, quite literally, the humiliation of the brothers coming to Joseph. Ironically, in this case, not even knowing who he was, but coming to him and essentially acknowledging we need help. We are at the end of ourselves. Now let's be clear that the particular circumstances at play with Joseph's brothers are pretty unique. If you have had to grovel at the feet of somebody you have previously wronged because you were starving in the midst of a widespread drought and famine, would you raise your hand? Anyone get forced into that? Yeah, I didn't imagine so. So that particular situation is unique for sure. During our our midweek sermon talk through, Pastor Aaron mentioned that not many of us are given the gift of a famine to help us find the humility that we need, right? So that's true. In all seriousness, sometimes God allows calamity in our lives that, that rather forces our hand into a posture of humility. At other times, God even directly leverages consequences of our sin to teach us the gift of humility. That seems to be the sort of thing that God is doing here in Genesis. But let's understand that we don't need to wait for outside forces for the hand of God to intervene and break us down so that humility is literally the only option we have before us. We have the option to choose humility for the sake of restoring relationships that are broken. And we're not talking about only relationships where we are the 100% wrongdoer. Here's the invitation before us today. If we have anything to acknowledge that is our responsibility for having contributed to a broken relationship, if we have been in any way part of the problem, regardless of what our percentage of culpability might be, if we have anything that we can claim and own and acknowledge, then we can help to create an environment where relational restoration might have the possibility to gain some traction. A major theme from this pulpit over the past year or more has been a call to repentance, to to confession, as a beautiful God-honoring posture of humility. And that certainly involves repentance and confession before God, who is the one we ultimately betray when we sin. Joseph was certainly aware of this reality when he ran away from the advances of Potiphar's wife. His rationale from Genesis 39.9 was, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? So God is the primary object of offense, when we sin. But repentance and confession have human points of reference too. What is the simplest, most fundamental expression of acknowledging that we have hurt another and expressing our sorrow for having done so? An apology. An apology. Yes, that's right. We're going back to the uber basics now. We're going to talk about apologizing. This is something that we teach little ones. The need to apologize when you jump off the top of the couch and land on your father's ribcage, knees first. Hypothetically speaking. The the need to apologize when you take a big bite of chocolate pudding, walk over to your father, put your face three inches from his, and rip off the world's largest sneeze. (laughs) But only my kids have done these sorts of things? Okay, well, whatever the offense may be from your more delicate children... We teach apologizing to children because it's an important act. And then we promptly forget how to apologize when we become adults. Why? Because apologizing is an expression of humility that comes very unnaturally and begrudgingly to many of us, especially when we don't think the issue, the friction, the dissonance is entirely or even primarily our fault. In the book that many of our pastoral team use when we're doing premarital counseling, The author Gary Chapman has an entire chapter on apologizing. Why is that? Because he's counseled thousands and thousands of couples in in various stages of marital tension and brokenness has come to the conclusion that many of us need remedial help in apologizing. It's a brilliant little chapter further expounded by an entire book on the subject that Chapman wrote called The Five Apology Languages. Not surprising to some of you who are familiar with Chapman as the five languages guy. Oh this is a subpoint of a subpoint of this message. So I'm not going to dig into all of the granular detail, but I love the work that Chapman does of helping us understand that there are cheap and non-meaningful ways for us to pretend to apologize. We hear these all the time from public figures. I am deeply sorry that you managed to get yourself hurt by the completely benign and well-intentioned thing that I did with my heart of gold that you just misinterpreted and made into a thing that hurt you. Yeah, deeply sorry about how you did that to yourself. We, we've heard these kinds of apologies. That's a bad apology. But they're different and meaningful ways for us to actually apologize, which Chapman characterizes in these simple five phrases. Expressing regret, accepting responsibility, making restitution, genuinely expressing the desire to change behavior, and requesting forgiveness. Each of these five permutations of apologizing are slightly different some excuse me some more meaningful to certain people some more appropriate in certain situations but each with a nuanced value in setting the stage for relational restoration and all of them each language of apologizing if it's sincere and heartfelt is contingent upon humility as the starting point absent humility it's just vacuous empty words with humility it can be the catalyst for reconciliation I wonder if any of us might be aware of a broken relationship in our life where God might be stirring within us the need to humble ourselves and apologize to someone we have hurt. Even if only a small portion of the hurt is our responsibility, may, maybe so. Would we if that be the case, would we have the courage and the humility to do so before God has to bring famine upon us to make it the only option? There's one other human reality that we see unfolding in this story of Joseph that seems worth reflecting upon today. This, from the other side of the relational restoration coin, from the side of the coin of the one who has been wronged, just as humility is critical to restoration, forgiveness is critical to restoration. Indeed, forgiveness is critical relational restoration there there are a lot of remarkable aspects to joseph's role as the deliverer of god's people but i'm not sure we can imagine anything more remarkable than his response when the brothers who conspired to kill him knelt before him we can certainly imagine alternative responses i can imagine a scenario hey guys remember me now off with your heads Uh, Before we really press into this idea of forgiveness, let me acknowledge that abused and oppressed people have historically heard a lot about their need to forgive their oppressors. Christian abusers have used the Christian virtue of forgiveness as a means to, quite frankly, further perpetrate abuse upon those who live under their oppressive influence. But I think the problem is often that the form of forgiveness taught and sought in those contexts is not true forgiveness, not the forgiveness of our God. So as I invite you to consider the value of forgiveness in setting the groundwork for relational restoration, let's quickly acknowledge what forgiveness is not. Again, my thanks to Gary Chapman for my other favorite chapter in his premarital counseling book which delineates the difference between what forgiveness is and what it is not. So for starters, forgiveness is not forgetting. This notion that we must forgive and forget is conflating two very different things. We don't magically forget something awful that happened to us when we forgive someone. At no point in the biblical narrative, at the multiple points, when Joseph's brothers ask for his mercy upon them, does he say, whatever for? You've never done anything inconceivably and grotesquely inhumane to me. You don't see any of that. There is no presumption of forgetfulness. So let's acknowledge that those are two very separate things forgiveness also does not remove consequences from wrongdoing. This is often a deep and very legitimate concern when we're talking about more traumatic forms of offense, especially abuse, that forgiving someone is to eliminate the possibility that the offender will be held responsible for their actions with some form of specific accountability. Again, two very different things. Forgiveness is it's not forgetting. It doesn't remove consequences. Forgiveness does not rebuild trust. In the various iterations of Joseph's interactions with his brothers after they first came to Egypt for help, Joseph seemingly, well, he seemingly yanks them around a little bit, doesn't he? In Genesis 42, he tells them to go back and get their younger brother, Benjamin. In Genesis 44, he tells his steward to plant a silver cup in one of their sacks and then accuse them of stealing it. He's definitely testing them. But what is he... What is he doing? Why is he doing that? Is he, is he being cruel and sadistic? No, in all of the games that he seems to be playing with them, it seems to me that he's just testing the authenticity of their contriteness, testing their character to see if they've grown up, learned anything since his previous interactions with them. I, I think that all of that apparent manipulation is just Joseph feeling out whether or not he can start to trust these men to extend to them the hand of full relational restoration. He's already forgiven them, right? That happened in a moment by a choice, but he's figuring out now over the long haul if he can trust them, and that's how trust is rebuilt. Again, an entirely separate entity from simply the choice to forgive. Forgiveness and trust are two different parts, related parts, but two different parts Of the reconciliation puzzle. Uh, Finally, let's acknowledge that forgiveness does not always result in full reconciliation. Restoring broken relationships is, by its definition, a two-way street. I'm suggesting to you today that those two ways prominently include humility and forgiveness. In many cases, both parties need to bring a posture of humility and the spirit of forgiveness to the table. Absent any of those pieces of the relational puzzle, full reconciliation is not inevitable. It's certainly not guaranteed. Indeed, we see examples throughout scripture, whether it's Paul and Barnabas or or even Jesus in some of the towns where he went to minister, where there was a need to separate, to walk away without full reconciliation because not all parties were interested. There's a time and a place where a full relational restoration is not possible or would not even be healthy. Forgiveness does not necessarily lead to complete re- reconciliation. In Genesis, Joseph and his brothers were all feeling their way through the wreckage of their relational brokenness. Uncertain if this supposed restoration that we observe over the course of these final chapters of Genesis, it was even real. Whether it was authentic. Do you remember the passage in Genesis 50 that we read earlier? This is at the very end. After all of this had taken place after all 70 members of Jacob's family had rented the the U-Haul donkeys and they'd relocated from Canaan to Goshen. And after they had been blessed and welcomed by Pharaoh himself, when Jacob died, the brother's immediate reaction was, oh no, now Joseph is going to drop the hammer. Now that daddy-o is gone, he's going to unleash the fury of vengeance upon us. Remember Joseph's response. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. After years, they were still working this out together. He had to reassure them, brothers, we are good. So if forgiveness doesn't guarantee Restoration, well, then why bother? Well, because forgiveness is not ultimately about the offender. Forgiveness is ultimately primarily about the offended, the wronged party, releasing the burden of the offense, releasing it into God's hands to deal with, releasing the weight of pain by refusing to allow unforgiveness to burrow and fester into bitterness and resentment and a desire for revenge. Staying in that place of unforgiveness allows the offender to continue to have control, to continue to dominate, to continue to hurt and wound. Indeed, earthly forgiveness, rightly understood, is a gift primarily for the forgiver, not for the forgiven. Here's the thing. Full reconciliation, again, depends on two parties. Forgiveness does not. If someone has been deeply hurt, traumatized, abused, to the extent that it would be unwise and even unsafe to reestablish contact with the abuser, they can still find relief and release through forgiveness. Hurting people can even be relieved of a burden by forgiving people who are no longer alive. Indeed, forgiveness is a beautiful, godly thing demonstrated powerfully by Joseph as an Old Testament precursor to the ultimate forgiver, Jesus, on the cross. So humility is essential for restoration. Forgiveness is essential for restoration. And God is in the business of relational restoration. Without humility and forgiveness, God doesn't tend to do the healing, redemptive, restorative work that is his specialty. In many cases, in the midst of many broken relationships, maybe in the midst of a broken relationship that's on your mind, even today, maybe you need to bring humility or forgiveness, or both, to see if God might wanna do something remarkable. It might be part of a grander global promise that God is fulfilling, or maybe it's a simple local place of healing between one child of God and another. No matter the scale, that restorative work can be such a gift. You know, we see all around us a world clamoring after these things. Just this couple of days ago, Kate and I watched an, an episode of, of The Crown The whole episode was about forgiveness, about Queen Elizabeth, talking with a very favorably portrayed Billy Graham about forgiveness. It's a beautiful episode. One of my favorite creative discoveries of the pandemic season of homebound isolation was the Broadway phenomenon, Hamilton. Artistically, it's brilliant, though admittedly, it took me a while to figure it out. I'm not much for for rap and spoken word poetry. When we started watching Hamilton about 10 minutes into it, I said to Kate, I don't understand anything they're saying. They're talking so fast. And just like watching a film with really thick Irish accents, eventually you sort of settle in and and start to understand it. And with Hamilton, by intermission, I said to Kate, I think it's possible that I really like this. And then by the end of the show, I said to Kate, I think this is one of the most incredible creative experiences I have ever had in my life. If you've never seen it, you might want to check it out. It has a few rough edges, but I think it's well worth it. And if musical theater really isn't your thing, that's okay. You don't have to go there. But let me tell you why Hamilton gripped my soul so profoundly. It's the story of our founding fathers and some really funny stuff from King George and Thomas Jefferson. And the portrayal of George Washington is just so beautiful, so fabulous. But the guts of the story is based around Alexander Hamilton and his important but often underappreciated role in the founding of this great nation. But underneath all of that political and governmental intrigue is a beautiful relationship, a very real relationship between Hamilton and his wife, Eliza. It's a relationship filled with love and sacrifice and compromise, but filled with ambition and lust and selfishness and pride. The cumulative effect of that sin cripples their relationship. There is brokenness and pain and sorrow and distance and loss and anger and heartache. And all of that is, is very real. You feel it when you're watching this story. And when all of that seems to have reached the very bottom, there is a crack in the arrogance and the bravado and the self-assuredness. And in that crack, humility seeps in. And out of that humility, there is heartfelt apology. And on the grounds of that apology is forgiveness, offered in the most profoundly beautiful way I've maybe ever seen portrayed on stage or screen. Every time I hear this song, it's quiet uptown that depicts the rawness of that space where relational reconciliation is emerging out of the mess. I just go, Full on, Joseph, I just weep. It is so profound. The pain, the loss, the hurt is still very much there. Nothing has been forgotten. The consequences absolutely remain. Trust is only beginning to be rebuilt. And reconciliation isn't even remotely guaranteed at that moment. But there is profound hope that that reconciliation may be on the horizon because humility and forgiveness have created the space for that truly, well, what I would call miraculous restorative work of God to be even possible. That story of Alexander and Eliza is the same story we see through Joseph and his brothers. And that's the story that we celebrate every time we gather to worship our good God. Every time we see an earthly example of relational restoration, every time we read a biblical example of relational restoration, every time we experience a personal example of relational restoration, it's merely a reflection of the restorative work that God has done for us. He entered into that restorative space in a spirit of humility that doesn't even make sense for the creator of the universe. But he came as a baby in a manger in a forgotten town born to unremarkable parents. He came as humbly as we can possibly imagine for the purpose of dying on a cross to restore his relationship with us by forgiving us of our sins against each other and against him. Now, God is faithful to his promises and he uses his people to accomplish his purposes. And one of those purposes is that we might demonstrate his love for each other. And one of the best ways we can do that is to hold on to the hope that he is in the business of relational restoration. If God has a step of humility or a, a choice to forgive that would allow us to accomplish his purposes in and through us, may we be open to participating in that good work as we go from here. Join me as we pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, the gift of these ancient and timeless stories that reveal, in many cases in very raw ways, the brokenness of humanity that we know from afar in a historical moment, but we know in the here and now in our own lives within ourselves, and within the relationships all around us. But we experience that brokenness. We know it. And we find hope in the fact that we see throughout history, throughout the scriptures, and throughout the lives of those around us, that you are indeed in the business of relational restoration. We thank you for that, Lord. That is not easy. That is not simple. We can't be guaranteed that you will take us from point A to point B. But we know that you desire deeply to be at work in us and through us and all around us and despite us as necessary to help us experience that kind of redemption and restoration and healing that is in your heart. So we pray, Lord, that you might do that work in us today. That today might be part of that journey of restoration with those all around us that would reflect the restorative work that you've done through your son on the cross and out of that empty tomb. We thank you, Lord. We pray all these things in the precious, powerful, and restorative name of Jesus. Amen.